0: Well, this evening we explore more of Jesus' words from the cross. This is a series which we began several years ago on a Good Friday. Uh, the series is called, actually, Famous Last Words. It's tough to believe that this is the fifth Good Friday since I've been here at Edison Bible. How time flies. It's two years ago, you might recall that we did this with Zoom Uh, through zoom with several other churches remember each one took one of the seven churches or i'm sorry seven words of jesus from the cross and what a blessing uh, that was but it's great of course to be meeting in person tonight as well we're looking closely at jesus last words from the cross and as you might recall from previous years i like to share people's last words a lot of times there's uh, some comical ones and some very serious ones Tonight I thought I would share some famous last words, at least from this particular website, of U.S. presidents. Woodrow Wilson said, I am a broken piece of machinery. When the machine is broken, I am ready. Grover Cleveland, the president who successfully led the nation through the worst depression prior to the Great Crash of 1929, said, I have tried so hard to do right. (laughs) Andrew Jackson said I hope to meet you all in heaven be good children all of you and strive to be ready when the change comes Zachary Taylor a former general known as old rough and ready declared I am about to die I expect the summons very soon I have tried to discharge all my duties faithfully I regret nothing but I am sorry that I am about to leave my friends William Henry Harrison was delirious at the time of his death. Believing that he was speaking to his vice president, John Tyler, he said this Sir, I wish you to understand the true principles of government. I wish them carried out. I ask nothing more. In the midst of dying from a cerebral hemorrhage, Franklin D. Roosevelt said simply, I have a terrible headache. And those were the last words recorded. Benjamin Harrison asked plaintively, Are the doctors here? Doctor, my lungs. James A. Garfield, who lingered for more than 80 days after being shot in 1881, said to his chief of staff, Oh, Swaim, there is a pain here. Swaim, can't you stop this? Oh, oh, Swaim. And that was it. Just prior to experiencing a stroke that would prove fatal, Richard Nixon called out, help, help. John Quincy Adams' last words were, this is the last of earth. I am content. One more. Dwight D. Eisenhower put it succinctly. After affirming his love for his family and nation, he said, I want to go. I'm ready to go. God, take me. Last words of the writers and characters in the Bible are are interesting to ponder. Um, we've thought through some of that in the past with uh, most people saying that Second Timothy was the last letter that Paul wrote, for example, and last words of others in scripture. It's interesting to consider, but perhaps not no more so than than the last words of the Son of God. Before he experienced that which he had been moving towards for many months, uh, really ever since he said in Luke 9:51 that it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. Really, though, his whole earthly life was moving towards this, the cross. And looking at it even more big picture, it's what all of history was moving toward—the cross. So what was on the mind and heart of our Savior when he was breathing his last breaths on this earth, knowing that he would die and rise again and ascend to the Father? Well, the cross affords us an intimate look into his thoughts as he bled and died. This is a series on the seven words and phrases from the cross. If the Lord tarries and all things remain the same, we will continue this in the Good Fridays to come. The seven words on the cross are these. In Luke, already had this read for us, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In John, we had read for us, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. In Luke, also, today you will be with me in paradise. In Matthew and Mark, these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John, I am thirsty. And also, it is finished. And in Luke, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Today, our focus will be in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. The name of this series is Famous Last Words, but the title of today's message is Separated from God. Separated from God. So let's read together Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46, just two verses this evening. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, we need your leading and guiding as we look into your word tonight. pray that our hearts would be warmed with this truth, that we would have understanding, and understanding would lead us to worship you more and love you more. And I pray that as we consider these things that you suffered for us, uh, that we would be prepared to live a life of sacrifice for others as well. Work in each of our hearts tonight. We need your spirit to be at work in our hearts in order for anything good to come from tonight. So I pray your spirit would be at work, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are some things that the word separated conjure up in your mind? Perhaps your mind immediately goes to parents or some other couple who first were separated and ultimately divorced. Maybe you've heard of accounts of children being separated at birth. If there's a heated dispute, it is often necessary that the parties be separated before a fight breaks out. In the canon of scripture, the concept of separation comes up frequently And very early on, God separated the day from the night in Genesis. The sheep and the goat are separated at the judgment of the nations. God's people are called to be separate and set aside unto holiness, and yet not separated as to go out from the world. But to do... Business occupy until the Lord returns. Well, I want to lay some of the backdrop for the message at one of the first separations that occurred in Scripture. Happened in Genesis chapter three. Prior to that, there was no separation between God and man at the beginning. Man lived in perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God Almighty. Certainly a a desirable position and privilege. But something changed all that. Sin changed all that. With one deception and the giving into it, even Adam brought sin into this world, and the result of sin is separation from God. There was a rift in the relationship between God and man that had not been there previously. So instead of perfect fellowship... Sin caused them to want to run and hide from God in the garden. What a tragic thing to see in in Genesis 3, that they were then hiding from God. Instead of innocence, they sought to cover themselves with clothing. Remember the fig leaves? But God pursued them and confronted them, asking questions questions that he knew the answer to, so that they would confess, confess to what they had done. But instead the finger pointing began. Remember the, the blame, blame shifting. Um, they did what any of us would do under similar circumstances, under the, the microscope of, of scrutiny of God. God affirmed the need for a covering. But instead of the fig leaves that they had brought, he provided um, instead of what mankind, what Adam and Eve brought, he, he brought, he, he substituted for those fig leaves, a blood sacrifice which required the death of an innocent animal. The first time that they had seen the evidence of death. Further illustrating the separation, do you remember what happened next? Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Separated from the place that was symbolic of God's presence. They couldn't remain in their sin and be in God's presence at the same time. Something had to be done. Something had to change. So much that happens in this world, which be- is, um, began in the garden as a result of man trying to come up with their own way to bridge the gap caused by this separation. Um, when you look out upon all that, that happens in this world today in false religion, so much of it is um, the same thing where we're trying to come up with our own way to bridge that gap in that separation. That's why Cain brought the works of his own hands to God because he figured... God would have to accept it and accept him. But Cain was wrong. Abel Abel brought the sacrifice of faith. He brought a blood sacrifice. And it was accepted not for anything intrinsic in Abel, not because God liked Abel more, or because um, God didn't like Cain as much, but because he obeyed and brought the only sacrifice that was acceptable to God. The Pharisees pointed to their works as proof that they were right with God. Remember what the the Pharisee and the tax collector, what did the Pharisee do? He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like him, because I do this, 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 and this. Pointed to his good works. In the end, that was just like the covering of figs. Of Cain's sacrifice, what he brought. It's, it's another way of man trying to be right with God apart from God's way. Perhaps there's no more vivid attempt or example in Scripture of this attempt of man to work his way up to God than the Tower of Babel. That was man's way of trying to work his way up to God. Mankind has been trying to do this ever since bring sacrifices to God that he never ordained to remove the separation. But it cannot be because none of these things remove the sin that is the cause of the separation. The sin can't be swept under the rug. It has to be dealt with. And a perfect blood sacrifice had to be made so that God could accept it and accept those, by the way, who trust in it. The common thought of the day is that people are born neutral. And if they do more good than, than bad, they will be accepted by God and get into heaven. And if they don't, they won't be accepted and they will end up in hell. And they'll say, well, it's dependent upon if I do more good, if I can maybe just get to the end of my life and that last work, maybe it'll take me over the top and I'll end up in heaven. That's a lie from the enemies of souls. There is no amount of good we can do to overcome the sin that has been placed on our account. It's kind of like having a $100,000 mortgage and going to the bank with a dollar and expecting to have the debt removed. But even worse than that, because our debt is infinite. We could never repay it on our own. And so what a tragedy. There are systems of religion out there that promote good works as penance to pay off a debt which isn't possible. What hopelessness in that. Isaiah 64.6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The best things that we do if we're not in Christ are like filthy garment. And I don't, won't get into the details about this, but filthy garment doesn't quite give the full understanding of this word. It's a very disgusting word. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Rather than painting the picture of humanity as pretty good people, just a few minor flaws, Romans 3 and other places paints the picture of total depravity. There's nothing good in us. No ability to respond to truth. We are miserable and hopeless apart from the intervention of God our Savior. Unless God intervenes, we will remain in the place of separation eternally so that brings us to the cross and it brings us to matthew chapter 27 these words of jesus were a little bit different than the others i believe recall jesus had spoken to john and his mother from the cross in a touching scene of provision for his mother after he would be gone he had spoken words of grace and mercy to a criminal today you will be with me in paradise He had spoken words of intercession to the Father, addressing him as Father, asking for the forgiveness of those who were murdering him. He also addressed the Father at the very end when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He also will say, I thirst and it is finished, words that really there's no specific audience that's uh, indicated in those things but certainly probably s- several groups of people would have would have heard that that were present that day but our words today are different for several reasons which we will explore as we look more closely at these words so point number 1 today is that the setting speaks of separation the setting speaks of separation Verse 45 says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Up until this time, this was a very normal crucifixion. One that had been reenacted and witnessed over and over again uh, by Rome against its enemies. But at the sixth hour, something drastically changed. Darkness fell for three hours. That had not happened at any crucifixion previously. And it was a darkness that hardened the hearts of courageous soldiers and had them scared. This was not an eclipse. It was a supernatural darkness. But this darkness was symbolic of the separation that was happening. It was temporarily snuffing out the light of the world. It was at this time that the sin of the world was placed upon Jesus. And while he was bearing this sin, the father could not look at the son. He had to turn his back upon him. This is the first time that Jesus had ever been separated from the father. And by the way, praise God, it would be the last time that this would happen as well. The perfect fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden had a beginning and an end, but the perfect fellowship of the Son of God with the Father had no such beginning. In a marvelous mystery, they had coexisted in perfect fellowship from eternity past until this very moment on the cross. It's very likely that that more than the human suffering that Jesus would experience, it was this separation that caused him to wrestle and plead in the garden that this cup would be passed from him. And yet he submitted to the will of the Father, knowing that temporary separation was part of the deal. It was part of what would be required. Part of God's plan. He submitted to the will of the Father, It was part of God's plan, and it had to be so, because sin separates, and sin had to be dealt with. The setting of darkness speaks of separation. Now, secondly, the address speaks of separation. The address speaks of separation. In two others of his words from the cross, he said, Father, in this address he says, Not father, but my God, my God. That's the only time he says this. The universal fatherhood of God can be a bit deceiving. In a sense, we are all children of God in that he created every one of us, but in another sense, it is not so. In John chapter 8, as Jesus is sparring with the Pharisees, he says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Then he says to these religious leaders, these respected leaders that all the people would follow, he says to them, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I challenge the people who want to depict Jesus as some weak wimp of a person to look at passages like this. He was strong and dealt strongly When he needed to. So here he is sparring with the Pharisees. And they claim Abraham as their father. But Jesus points back to their spiritual father, Satan. Sin, at its core, is a defection from God. And adjoining oneself to Satan's kingdom. The kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of rebellion. We're described, uh, unbelievers are described in scripture man as uh, strangers at times and enemies of God there's no neutrality in that rather than being born neutral every one of us is born in sin and is quite literally a child of Satan we have sin that was inherited and we also sin in action proving that we are surely part of Adam's race and if you've never accepted Christ as Savior, you too are a child of the devil. It may sound harsh, but it's absolutely what God's word teaches. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, For he rescued us from the domain, or the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. What a, a glorious transfer that happens when one is born again. We are rescued from Satan's kingdom and put into a much greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it's, it's a transfer that never will be reversed, will never be returned to that kingdom. We're bought off the slave market, never to be put up again. You might say we are off the market. Praise God. The address of Jesus to my God instead of Father speaks to the separation that Jesus experienced on the cross. His relationship with the Father was temporarily severed. This is the truth that Chris Anderson's hymn seeks to uh, depict for us when he says in, in his robes for mine, God estranged from God. Jesus, the Son of God, separated from God the Father, and he did this out of love for those who would believe, his children. And so the setting speaks of separation. The address speaks of separation. Now thirdly, the manner of speech speaks of separation. The manner of speech speaks of separation. First the setting, then the address, now the manner of speech. And two two things to consider as we look at this last point. First is that he cried out with a loud voice. Now this is not the only time that he cries with a loud voice from the cross. For example, Luke twenty three forty six, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But That was a different kind of cry, with a loud voice. It was purposeful, it was one that, that was determined to trust the Father. It seems reasonable to also believe that when Jesus said, it is finished, that was with a loud voice also. It was a cry of victory. Redemption was accomplished. Nothing more was needed to be done. It is finished was a victory cry. The war was over at the cross. Jesus has won. The loud cry in our passage in Matthew is quite different. It's a cry of anguish, of heart and soul. It is the cry of one who has experienced separation, which has brought torment. And so first, it was the loud voice, this manner of speech, the loud voice of torment. But second, he uses this word forsaken forsaken this word means to leave behind in some place to desert and we can come up with human illustrations of this maybe a child who's afraid of the dark left to themselves when their parents say good night and shut the door or a person who was married for decades suddenly have to learn to live without their long-term companion perhaps when a parent leaves some place and one of the children is left behind, like some far too realistic version of Home Alone series, we can understand partly the panic that comes with that. But any human illustration we come up with will fall short of the anguish that the Son of God experienced while hanging on the cross as this perfect fellowship of the Godhead was broken for the first time My God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why have you left me behind in this place? Why have you turned your back on me? That's what the word forsaken means. Maybe that these words from the cross would be the closest we could come to describing words that Jesus said that were spontaneous. They so clearly display his humanity. This is extreme passion, and there is emotion-charged words that he's speaking here. The cross is not some embellished story or one that should be seen in a sterile light. No, the bleeding and dying Jesus was taking on the sin of the world and was tormented by the separation of his father. All of his other friends had scattered now the one who had always been there also was gone in an instant. Dying, deserted, naked, alone. Jesus experienced this torment. But mercifully, it was only temporary. Sin was paid for, and the separation was over. The relationship between the father and son restored never to be severed again. So as we close this evening, just a few truths to ponder over the next few days. Jesus bore the separation so that we wouldn't have to. He bore the separation so that we wouldn't Have to. If you know Jesus as your Savior, the moment that you came into that relationship with the Father, it was secure for all time so that you'll never have to experience that separation. He experienced separation that you wouldn't have to. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called a forerunner. And what that means is because He went before us into heaven, our path is also secure. If the forerunner is accepted, those who come after will also be accepted. In a similar, but also a very different way, he experienced separation from God. The epitome of what hell is like, so that we would not have to go there. He bore the separation from God. He experienced something like outer darkness. Not the same thing, but Very similar qualities, I'm certain. The darkest time, three hours in the existence of this world. And there may have been some weeping and gnashing of teeth at the cross. He took on the wrath of God against sin. So that we would not have to. Again, the words of his robes from mine. Such anguish, none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. You see the the switch there. Um, How much of this goes back to uh, the substitution. He goes on in these lyrics to say, He as though I, accursed and left alone. What he's saying there is, Jesus is taking where I should have been, what I deserved, as though I, he is, accursed and left alone. But in that place, I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. Jesus bore that time of separation and all the uh, difficulty and all the the um, trauma at the cross that we wouldn't have to. He bore the wrath of God, and as uh, another hymn says, there's no wrath left for me. No wrath left for me. One more thought as we close. Jesus took on our sin so that we could have his righteousness. This is double imputation. He was made sin for us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that we might be given the righteousness of Christ, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ. What an incredible exchange that is. Think of any trade that's ever been made in this world, and this far outweighs it. What an incredible exchange. We have all of our sin, and we can exchange it for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and all the benefits that come with salvation. So if you have not trusted Christ and uh, been given this exchange, why not? Do it today. Do it today. Jesus took on separation. For a moment, he no longer would say, Father. Instead, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it was a temporary situation, and it brings us eternal rewards. Praise the Lord for that. Father, thank you for your word and what it teaches us. And I pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of these things. There's certainly a mystery involved in this. And yet, Lord, you um, make it clear that you are human. Even as you were divine, hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, on the cross. So even as we look closely at the humanity of Jesus on the cross, we know that you never stop being God. And we know that you are at the right hand of the Father today, making intercession for us. We are truly in a privileged position, knowing you as Savior We never have to experience that separation. Praise God for that. There's never a time where we would come to you in prayer and we would say, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't happen. You are always there when we enter the throne of grace. Pray that we would share this message with others, that we would contemplate the cross over the next few days, Lord, and all the busyness that we would set aside time just to meditate and contemplate on the cross and that we would come in just a couple days rejoicing that Jesus is risen indeed. Oh, death, where is your sting? Thank you that we serve a risen Savior today. But also I pray that you would help us not to take lightly the sacrifice that you've given for us. That it might motivate us to live sacrificial lives for others also. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.